Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. Welcome back to our 38th episode, and I think this is the fourth episode on the road to the Oscars. Yeah, fourth this season of Road to the Oscars season two. Yeah, um, and today we are going to be discussing The Fablemans. I want to hear you talk about it first because you hadn't seen The Fablemans until today, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, and I should have done what I was scheduled to do like in my planner and watched it on, well, Friday, which was I guess like three days ago at this point. We're recording on Monday right now, and... I am like emotionally a wreck, so bear with me. I might cry again. <laughs> All good. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Because this is a huge movie. It's Spielberg. It's getting great reviews. Honestly, I think it has a great chance at sweeping a lot of the categories in the Oscars. So just tell me, what were your thoughts on it? It was pleasantly surprising in the best way. I don't know. I think it's because I didn't really know anything about it other than it was like about Spielberg's life. I was so excited for it to come out and then it came out and I really didn't have this like pull to go see it. And I'm, I'm regretting that now because it is such an absolutely gorgeous movie. It's beautiful from beginning to end. It's paced perfectly. Like this, the scope is perfect. They don't try to shove too much into one. It is just a masterpiece. What do you think about it? I completely agree with you. I mean, I had really high expectations for it, and I ended up seeing it, I think it was the second week that it was here, Mm -hmm. and I was blown away. I really loved it. I fell in love with it at first watch, and it's kind of one of those movies that stuck with me. I saw it a second time in theaters, and then I watched it at home today for the first time, so I've seen it in three times total, but... It wasn't a top 10 for me last year, and a lot of people have this in their top 10 of the last year because it kind of just didn't, I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't a bad film by any means, but it just didn't Mm -hmm. do what the top 10 movies of last year did for me, which was give me like a sense of excitement. And I know last week we talked a lot about, uh, or maybe it was the week before, but rewatchability. And Mm -hmm. for me, this isn't a movie that has a ton of rewatchability. It's pretty emotionally intense. And I mean, yes, it's moving at times, but it is, you know, one of those coming of age movies, which this is a first for Spielberg, really. I don't think we've seen many coming of age from him. So yeah, he does a lot of like epic features. Definitely. So I think that, you know, in terms of rewatchability, it's not a movie I We'll probably rewatch a ton more, but I am really glad and I did really enjoy it. And it is a movie that, you know, I think should be celebrated. It celebrates the love for filmmaking, which as someone who really was into the film industry and wanted to go into the film industry when I was younger, it really kind of resonated with me when I first saw it. So I loved it. But yeah, it it just didn't crack that top 10 last year. It probably would, if I had actually done my homework and done the 11 to 20, it would have been in that list. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, going back, just because I didn't watch this film last year, it didn't make my top 10. But going back, I would absolutely revise this to make my top 10. And that is why we watch all the best pictures every year. Because, you know, <laughs> they oftentimes, apart from Elvis, are really the best of the best. 
Yeah, they really are. But let's get into it. I'm going to give you a spoiler warning right up front because we got a lot to cover today. We are going to be covering The Fablemans in its entirety. So if you've not seen this film yet and don't want it spoiled for you, we recommend you give that a watch before giving us a listen. Now, before we get into the plot, I also do want to have this conversation with you about how you just mentioned this movie is basically about Steven Spielberg's life. And going into it, did you kind of think that it was going to be more of a biopic than it was? I didn't think it was going to be a biopic so much as like, like to the degree that Elvis was, for example. Um, I knew it was going to have more of a, a story to it, primarily because it's not called Spielberg. You know, there's nothing about Spielberg in the title other than <laughs> his like name on the poster as director. But I, I didn't see this being a biopic so much. And I think there's, there was a really good quote that I read out of Variety and I want to share that with you guys. The costume designer, Mark Bridges, was talking about this, and he says, Judd Hirsch gave me an interesting little piece. He considered this a memory play. Stephen will deny that it is a memory play, but I think it is a memory play. And I think that is one of the best ways to describe this as a memory play. Absolutely. That's actually a great way of putting it. I mean, the person that I was going to see this movie with the first time around, they walked out and they kind of were expecting more of a Spielberg biopic, but that was the later years. Like, The Fablemans is telling his childhood story, and I think if it were to be a biopic, it would definitely be the sequel to The Fablemans, because The Fablemans kind of kicks off Spielberg's career. You know, we end on that hopeful note of him becoming this budding filmmaker. This film is very similar in the way that it was made to Belfast from last year, which was also nominated for Best Picture, um, in that it kind of followed Kenneth Branagh's childhood. And it was his story based on his memories, but it wasn't it wasn't nonfiction, I guess is the best way to put it. And that's why I like the word memory play. And when you get into like theater and looking into what constitutes a memory play, there's a lot that goes into kind of filling in the gaps. And I think that's what this this film does beautifully is that it it fills in all of the gaps. You have a cohesive story, but it's hitting all these key moments, these key memories that made him who he became. One of the things that I really loved about doing like background research for this episode was seeing Steven Spielberg talk about the movie because you can really see the passion for this film yes. from him. And I saw an interview with him. I can't remember where it was from exactly. I'll try and find it and put the link in our notes. But He mentioned something about how he sat down and was basically like coming to the realization, I think, that he's kind of getting towards the end of his career line. And he Mm -hmm. was like, you know, I want to think about a movie that I've wanted to make but haven't made yet. Oh, I have that quote. (laughs) Oh, well, there we go. So the only thing that really came into it was that it was personal. And that's what he liked. Why don't you share that quote? Yeah. He said, what I thought was that if I had to make one more movie – If I had to tell one more story, what would that be? And he came to this realization in the middle of the pandemic. And it was like a very hard time on him. And I mean, it was a hard time for everybody. Like he said, watching so many people die. And it it kind of like, I think that was a reality check for a lot of people. Like the pandemic really changed a lot of people intrinsically. It was very, very important in the way that everyone kind of moved forward from 2020. And for him, I think it signaled a time to look inward and say, okay, I am approaching like the last leg of my career. How many more films do I have in me? And what do I need to make sure gets out there? 
Yeah, and I think that it was a deep reflection period for him. So, like, yes. looking back at his past life, as he did when he was penning the script, it kind of gave him that opportunity to, you know, put a lens on a lot of the events that happened in his childhood and how it kind of made him into the person he became. And I think it's so brilliant because, like you said, he penned the script. He he was one of the uh, writers, um, and he worked alongside Tony Kushner, who is a fan fantastic like i cannot praise tony kushner enough he is a fantastic writer um you may know him from like angels in america that if you're um from theater even if you're not from theater angels in america is huge it's like a cultural movement and then he also did lincoln he rewrote west side story i i mean he's he's a huge name and i think getting both of their like talents together in creating that story and i think a big part of it also is that tony krishner also grew up jewish and i think having those perspectives because there is a big theme of like anti-semitism in this film that's like very important and it's all about the timing i mean when we open it's 1952 and they're at the Mm -hmm. movie theater for like the greatest show on earth so you know that you know it was that time post-world war ii where that was the common theme around society and i'm glad they touched up on it because in the beginning of the movie, they didn't really have that plot line. That's kind of one of the second, third act plot lines. Yeah, I was reading things about this being touching on a lot of anti-Semitism. And I was like halfway through the movie. I was like also scrolling through articles. And I was like, I guess so, but like not really. And then you get to those scenes and it's like, this is hard to watch, dude. Like it's not like <laughs> he really gets bullied. One of the things I really liked about the movie, though, is that it shows his journey from when he's young and how he fell in love with film, which we'll get into, actually. Um, Let's open up with the plot. We're introduced to the family of the Fablemans, which at this point consists of Sammy and his parents, Bert and Mitzi. And I I literally didn't remember his name. I have him written as dad through like the entire thing because I forgot his name. Oh, Yeah. But I love the family dynamic between the three of them. I think they have great chemistry. And it really, this first scene just really ties together kind of the introduction of Sammy and his love for filmmaking because they're taking him to the theater. And as they're waiting in line, right, it's the first time. And as they're waiting in line, he is kind of nervous. And he's like, you know, I've heard the people on the screen will be huge. And I don't know what to expect. I've heard it's loud. And the parents are trying to explain to him that it's this enjoyable experience. And we watch this look on his face as he's watching the greatest show on earth. And it's the train crashing scene where a train crashes into a car that's on the railroad tracks. And it was funny because when I was watching that, I was like, oh, my God, that's funny because Super 8. I was thinking uh, the same thing. (laughs) Amblin, which is Steven Spielberg's company. Yeah, loved it. I was watching this and just in awe. And that's kind of right away from the get go. I fell in love with this movie because you could just see the love that it brought to this little boy's face. And then he starts to obsess over it, which becomes the central part of this plot in the beginning. Exactly. I'm going to give you guys a ton of quotes throughout this because you know I'm a words girl. Like if you don't know I'm a words girl at this point, you're behind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that really drew me into this film is Mitzi, the mother, looks down at him as they're about to go into the theater and she says, movies are dreams, doll, that you'll never forget. And I just love that quote. And the relationship between Sammy and Mitzi throughout this whole movie is a very unique one because they're the two artsy people of the family that no one else really understands because Mm -hmm. Mitzi is a prized pianist. And, you know, she's always dreaming and looking on the brighter side and finding a laugh in life. And 
at a young age, Sammy kind of admires that. And when he starts to obsess about the train crashing, he wants to crash this model train that he asked for from his parents. And his dad gets upset about it because he's like, you know, toys are very intricate. His father is an engineer, so he's looking at it as the aspect very expensive. of... Yeah, it's very expensive. And he's looking at the aspect of it takes time for people to piece together these things that you just want to destroy. Mm -hmm. But Sammy shares that moment with Mitzi where they film the train crash and she says, we'll film it so you can watch it over and over again on your own time, but we won't tell your father because she knows that the dad wouldn't really understand why they did that. But that kind of starts to form this special bond between mother and son that's so consistent and is probably like the central theme of the Fablemans. Yeah, there's um, a quote later on in the in the film where they're sitting at the dinner table and Mitzi describes their family as artists versus scientists. And so that it kind of makes a divide with Mitzi and Sammy on one side and then the three girls. And what did you say his name was? Bert. Bert. I was like, Brad? Bert. Okay. <laughs> uh, the three girls and Bert as like the quote unquote scientists of the family. And it, there really is a very clear divide with that. And I'm I'm excited to talk about Mitzi later because her character is, oh my God, Michelle Williams. I wasn't sure who was nominated for Best Actress. So I immediately looked her up because at one point she had me sobbing. And I was like, oh my God, she got her nom. Like, I'm so happy for her. She's phenomenal in everything that she does. I've never really seen anything where she doesn't deliver, even when it's like a cringeworthy film. I mean, she's literally in the Venom movies for perspective. Yeah. But, like, you look at her performance in this, and it just, like, doesn't compare. Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. She just, she's amazing, like, to watch. And just the emotion that she's able to capture. There's the one scene, I'll tell you about it. Um, The one scene that, like, really made me, like, completely break down. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I, she needs this nomination. I'm going to be so upset if she doesn't have it. Um, It's it's a scene where she's she's crying, and she... All you get is like this one shot of her turning her head and the camera goes over to Sammy and you like see her lip just like shaking and she's just so upset. I don't even think she's like crying that hard, but like you see it in her face and she's just shaking. Oh my God, it's beautiful. One of my favorite scenes with her is the camping trip, which we'll get to in a little Ugh, bit, yes. but just her dancing scene with the camping trip and then, you know, the twist where you kind of find the heartbreaking turn that the mom's having an affair, which, you know, we'll get to that when we cover that. But it's just, she captures so much essence and so many emotions for a character mm -hmm. because she's such a flawed character, but she's such a lovable character at the same time. And you feel so close to her and like you can trust her, but she does have these character flaws that technically speaking, don't make her the greatest character or the most likable character. But mm -hmm. it's that perspective. And I think the Fablemans in general, the whole movie is one of those movies that's challenging you to look at different perspectives of things, whether it be from a filmmaker's lens or an outlook on life. Even from, I mean, like now that you're saying that, even from Bert's perspective as well, I think the film wants you more on Mitzi's side, this is kind of hard to explain, but like, bear with me. I think the film kind of tells the story in a way that makes you want to side with Mitzi. However, she has flaws that are kind of like swept under the rug. And then Bert has flaws that are like very spoken, like they're put into words. Like there's, there's times where he tells, I mean, there's several times throughout the movie that he's diminishing filmmaking and they, they make him outwardly not a bad person. He's still lovable, but I feel like you want to side with Mitzi on the end of this. But it's interesting to show how they 
crafted in a way that the artist is the one that you have sympathy for because at the end of the day we're telling the story of an artist which oh my gosh i read this um this one quote and i think it it is just so brilliant like the way that it compares it but they said um and i'm sorry i don't know who oh it was um it was kushner that said this it was in a a interview with tony kushner for npr and he said, I kept referring to this as portrait of the artist as a young man. You're watching a child develop a mastery, and that development is in part driven by the need to make things that aren't stable feel stable. And um, have you read Portraits of the Artist? Portrait of the Artist of a- <laughs> I can't say it. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man? I haven't, no. Okay. It is beautiful. If you love stories like this, I highly recommend it. It's by James Joyce. It's a little older, but it is a perfect comparison to literature in the way that he's he's a poet, he's a writer, and you're hearing these stories of his childhood. I would say that's also a memory play as well. And to hear him like compare those two, it just made sense in the way that the writing was. The writing's great for this movie because it really captures... like. Like we talked about, literally, I keep saying that, but we talked about it right in the opening scene, just capturing mm-hmm. that filmmaking, whether it be through dialogue, the love for filmmaking, um, through the dialogue, or just, you know, the characters and how they're showing the characters. You can really tell that Spielberg worked closely with these actors to make sure that mm-hmm. they captured how he actually was feeling in these moments. And one of my favorite behind the scenes thing, which actually brings us further into the plot, right after he crashes the train and films that and goes back to watch it, he starts making home movies with his sisters and it's such a fun little montage of them running around and the sisters being the two actresses and stars of all these little family made films. And one of the things I read during my research was that a lot of the films that young Sammy makes were like shot by shot recreations of the actual films that they made that Spielberg made when he was younger. That's so funny. And they're like, they're silly scenes like it he's like one of the sisters is playing a dentist and pulling candy corn teeth out of her sister's mouth while she's like covered in ketchup so it's like blood and and they're like mummies covered in toilet paper like they're they're so funny and childlike there's like this childlike wonder to it which is absolutely beautiful and so hearing that it's shot by shot is I mean, it just makes it even more special. But I just want to go back to the um, the train crash really, really quick because there was one shot that I think is just captures this whole movie. And the first time that he's so excited, first time he gets his his uh, film back, he puts it in the player and the projector, he puts his hands right in front of it. And he's literally like holding this picture in his hands and the picture like completely projects into his hands and it is like so metaphorical and so beautiful and I think that's just such a special moment and like the cinematography there is just gorgeous. I completely agree. It's such a special shot because, you know, he's all alone and he's just watching this movie and he finds so much joy in it. You can see this big grin on his Mm -hmm. face. And when he pulls his mom in to show her the movie, there's just this special moment and you can really see that relationship that's building. And it becomes so important, especially when we get into the teenage years with Sammy, you know, the relationship becomes a little bit more shattered and there's a little bit more tension between the two of them, but it's still such a special relationship. And even in the real world, Spielberg did have that really close relationship with his mom. And I think that he made this movie more of an homage to her than anything. I I completely agree because it really paints her in this way that she's so graceful and beautiful and ethereal. And I mean, (laughs) the person they show obviously is not perfect, but she's made to look perfect 
And I, I said at the beginning of this, top of the episode, one of the things they do really well is scope. And this covers from when I, what's he like six in the first, the first scene or something like that? So yeah, he's, like, he's young. Yeah, he's like six in the first scene. We're just going to say that. And then in the last scene, he's graduating high school, but it doesn't like we're getting to our first one year later. Like there's a a title that goes across and it says one year later. And it's the perfect spot to put it in because we see him learn film, practice film, bring his sisters into it. And now we have like a new baby in the family. And there's only one scene before it brings us to Arizona. But I really want to talk about the scene because, of course, we're talking about Mitzi again. This is the tornado scene. And the kids go mom, dad, there's a tornado outside. Come see, come see. And and she runs out there and she like grabs the kids. She gives the baby to Bert, uh, throws the kids in the car and they drive directly into the tornado. And I, I mean, this is obviously based on like a very important memory for Spielberg because it feels very out of place. And it's the only scene that we get after that one year later mark before we move to Arizona when they're still in New Jersey. So I just want to get your opinion on that because throughout the film, you kind of see this um, disillusion, I guess, of Mitzi. Like she's falling apart. She's completely like breaking at the seams. And this scene, it just doesn't feel in character for her i what what's your opinion on mitzi and like why this scene is included i mean we have to remind ourselves that this is right after they they being bert and mitzi discuss that they're going to be moving to arizona and we don't really understand why mitzi's so frantic about it and bert's kind of you know he's praised as this genius this tech genius and engineer by their family friend, Uncle Benny. But all of a sudden, Mitzi is insisting that Uncle Benny has to come with them and she gets frantic. And that leads into the affair plot line. So I think that showing her kind of going unhinged really puts into perspective the mental state that she's in in terms of her affair. I mean, we don't know at this point that she's having the affair. She may not even have started the affair at this point, but I think it's safe to say (laughs) based on this like loopy reaction that I think that's kind of the direct correlation of that. I don't really think it's so much as her just being in this suspended state of disbelief and kind of like on a parallel plane. And even later in the film, they talk about how she can't take anything seriously. So in this moment when everyone's frantically like, driving away from the tornado and screaming and saying no get inside she's just kind of like oh look how gorgeous and fun it is let's follow it around so it puts into perspective her character's ability to kind of just suspend disbelief in order to convince herself that everything around her is fine yeah i think there's definitely like not not to be that (laughs) person sorry guys i got a english literature degree and we psychoanalyze everything (laughs) um but I I really feel like there's an underlying plot of something going on in her brain, whether that be like BPD, which it seems, if I were to like guess, that seems what it is, like a mild BPD. It doesn't seem to the extreme of bipolar, but I feel like there's definitely something going on with her because the extremes that she goes to aren't natural. And I don't think anyone with like a healthy brain would end up in the way that she does by the end of the film because there are outbursts that she has. I mean, we we she slaps him later on and that's so out of character for her and it's her emotions control her sometimes and obviously they control all of us, but it it seems to an extreme that doesn't it feels heightened. Definitely. Well, I think part of this movie as much as it's like a reflective piece and mind you, I'm not Steven Spielberg, so I don't know in terms of accuracy if this is like 
from memory exactly or if he kind of like put some metaphorical spins on everything but yeah. i think that there is parts of this film that are really kind of hyped up and kind of just beyond belief for the purpose of you know heightening what's going on in the plot of the film right so we quickly move on to arizona and sammy's making a video of the family driving and he makes sure to like jump out and get a shot of the car pulling into the house so he jumps out first and then he's i love this cut here he goes and and then the scene cuts to him older as a boy scout and he goes stop and they're like playing with scorpions and we have a great shot here where all of the Boy Scouts are like riding their bikes, and it's very reminiscent of ET. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking ET because that was more of a Spielberg. It film is than Spielberg. Super yeah. It was, but it is very reminiscent of ET. It's very kids on bikes movie genre. Yeah, like the chase scene at the end where they're all like lined up in formation. Very reminiscent. Yeah. There are. I think there's a lot of references to other films in in this film, like other Spielberg for films, even if it's accidental, I feel like. So here's the thing with like art and art criticism and art interpretation. I am of the belief, and everyone kind of has their own opinion about this, but I'm of the belief that once an artist releases it, they are no longer in charge of it. And so whatever the intention behind the meaning is, it's up to the viewer or the perceiver to kind of come up with their own interpretation and what it means to them. So whether this was on purpose or not, there are a lot of shots that are very, like even at the end, it was uh, the, like ending shot reminds me a lot of West Side Story and like something's coming. Yeah, definitely. And the tornado scene reminded me a lot of the Jurassic Park stampede chase. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I whether it's intentional or not, there are those references that are in there if you look for them. But that brings us to the Boy Scout years, which is what starts off the teenage years, like you mentioned. And he starts making the videos with his Boy Scouts. It starts off earning like a badge for photography, I think. And of course, he argues that filmmaking is considered photography because it's multiple pictures just moving at a high frame rate. So it appears yeah, as if it's moving. Yeah, his dad told him that. Exactly. And that's really important, actually, that you mentioned that because the dad starts to kind of question why he's spending so much time doing this. And while he's super impressed, actually, by the film that they make for his Boy Scout badge, he keeps going on and emphasizing that this is a hobby. And he uses the exact word hobby so many times. And it gets yeah. to the point where it's like a boiling point for Sammy anytime he uses that word because he just wants to make movies. And that's what he wants to do with his life. But his dad refuses to let that happen. And he's just like, it's a hobby. This is just a hobby. You need to find something other than this hobby. If you are an artist that grew up in a house of scientists i feel like this entire story is so relatable to you and there are, there are lines out of it that just like instantly made me cry because i'm like oh my god i feel like i'm like living like reliving my life and um it i feel like unless you were raised by people who completely dedicated their lives to art there's always going to be this like slight disconnect in that it's it's so hard to understand like because it, it it is something that can be seen as a hobby where like i don't know consulting isn't a hobby you know what i mean like jobs aren't typically hobbies um even like engineering like it kind of starts off as like fixing things and taking things apart and then you're like becoming an inventor and whatever but i feel like in art all of these things 
can be hobbies as well and can be done on the side, but you also can make it your entire life. Exactly. And that's so important. I think it gets overlooked a lot of times, like you mentioned, by people that aren't really artists and haven't really done anything in the arts community. I think that it's not really taken as seriously and people don't really see it as a full-time job or a dependable mm -hmm. job. And it's true. And it's the not. life. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the life of an actor that you went through. It's just yeah. very off and on. You never really know when your next job's going to be. You're just constantly waiting to get called back. Exactly. And it's it's absolutely gut wrenching. And I can't wait to get to that scene a little later because let's move on because I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead because that's a really important scene to me. But I think what happens in Arizona is that Mitzi starts playing the piano again and she's going to play on live television. And there's this cute scene that seems cute at first because you don't know about the affair. But there's this cute scene where she's playing for everyone like practicing before she's about to be on television and her fingernails are so long that they're like tip 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 every time she's playing and it's really cute because like her husband and benny chase her around like trying to cut her fingernails and it's really kind of uncomfortable after you know about the affair let me just say yeah. having gone back and revisited that scene seeing the way that he like carries her and stuff knowing that he's literally sleeping with his best friend's wife in that moment really makes me just uncomfortable which is funny because it's seth rogan playing uncle benny oh my gosh, so yeah. like it's not a face that we've talked about how some characters you just you can't see them other than the actor that's portraying them uh -huh. and seth rogan is one of those people to me i've just seen him in so many things and just i've seen him do comedy as himself to the point that i'm like you're Seth Rogen. Sorry. Okay. So I want to talk about Seth Rogen for a second because the film started. Also, wait, backtrack a little bit. I don't think they, well, this is just my belief, but I don't think they ever actually slept together because it, she has that moment with Sammy later on in the film and she goes, it never got as far as you think it got. And I think they were just, I mean, what are we talking about? It was like the 60s. They were just like in love, you know? And it was like a secret love. What do you I mean, think? I think they went on to. I mean, do you know what happened in the outcome? Like, did you do any research of post-Fableman life, Steven Spielberg? No, but she does. I mean, towards the end of the movie, obviously she leaves. But I don't know if it started off that way. I don't know if she was completely unfaithful. Maybe. I don't know. I just know that she ended up, like, after leaving, going back to Benny. Yeah. I, I figure that's kind of how the, the film ends. But I, I don't know. Anyway, that's kind of a side Side note there, my opinion, your opinion. But back to Seth Rogen real quick before we get into this next scene because it's wonderful. But I I think it was so funny because I started watching it and I was like, I know that voice, but I didn't recognize his face. I just, I've never seen him in a role like this. And it was such a surprise seeing him being cast in a role like this. But I thought he did a really fantastic job. Yeah, it's definitely a turn compared to, let's say, Sausage Party, for example, or like Neighbors yeah. or like Knocked Up, any any of the Seth Rogen comedy movies. You know, this definitely is a change in character for him. And I, you know, just like I mentioned, saw Seth Rogen. And that's OK. He, I guess to me, like he the acting was like very good and I just didn't see his face in it. Actually, I can tell you exactly what my problem was. Someone <laughs> that I work with laughs exactly like Seth Rogen, like oh, no. to the point that, and no one actually recognized it until another one of our coworkers pointed out. And she was like, you 
sound like Seth Rogen when you laugh. And oh my god, slight resemblance. Like, and then I heard the laugh, and I was like, whoa! And so much throughout this movie, Benny is just laughing in the background, and I guess like that's what I just heard, and I was like, that's Seth Rogen. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But that brings us into our next scene, which is the camping trip. And this is where I would start to argue they have slept together. Okay. Because Sammy's, one of the things I really like about this camping trip is that we see it through the eyes of Sammy. We're kind of following everything that he's looking at and filming around. And it's just a very happy-go-lucky camping trip that everyone's having fun on, including Uncle Benny. And one night, everyone's around the campfire. It's a little bit you know, a few drinks in. Yeah. And Mitzi is doing this little dance with the wind. She's just happy hippie in this moment. That's what I'll call her. Yeah. And she's wearing this very thin night slip, which the kids mention. They're like, mom, people can see through your dress. But it keeps cutting to Benny's face and how he's taking it in. And I was definitely like in that moment, you know, I think yeah. you can really start to see the affair at that point if you hadn't seen it already. But then he turns on the car headlights to better illuminate it. And he tells Sammy to start filming it, which in my opinion is kind of weird. Like, I don't know. I guess it, like he does film it and he later watches the footage as if it is very like magical. But to me, that would just be kind of weird. Like, I wouldn't want to film my mom doing that. Yeah. I mean, in in the moment of like first watching this, I it didn't come like obviously it it does have that like bad intention behind it like a little bit but it didn't come across as like dirty or anything like it just i think was a moment where his mom was happy and he said shouldn't you be filming this he goes there's not enough light and so he turns on the car headlights and it it seemed first watch it seemed innocent and obviously we're we're getting those close up shots where Benny's like giving her like looks and everything but they're not exchanging looks so it's not like super prominent and it's not like a secret sexy scene like she's just being free and being happy i think for me the problem with benny specifically in this part was that when they were around the campfire they were speaking in hebrew and they were saying jewish prayers and then he kind of just started to make a joke about it and that's kind of what Mm -hmm. turned mitzi into being so goofy and i was kind of just like I don't know, Benny, that's kind of a little inconsiderate, especially considering you're literally having an affair with someone in that family and you can't even let them just have their like family moment. You got to steal the show. Yeah. I mean, there's several times that Benny, it's they're like microaggressions. You know, I wouldn't say he's like outward anti-Semitic towards them at all, but they're, they're microaggressions where he'll just say something and you're like, that didn't say right. Yeah, no. And even in that moment later that we get with him and Sammy, you're still kind of left, like, even after he does what he does for Sammy, you're left kind of just feeling like, yeah, but you still are kind of a sleaze. Yeah, like, you don't like him at the end. Like, he's not a character that you hate, but you don't like him, you know? Right. That brings us down from Mitzi's ethereal state down to a crashing halt when her mother dies and this really starts to be a big change for mitzi as a character this kind of starts to become more of is she mentally okay or is this just like how she is you kind of start to blur that line there's a snap for sure and i think i think this is where i started questioning her like mental sanity slightly um it's not to the point where she's ever particularly dangerous or like to herself or to others but 
you start questioning it a little bit. And it's interesting to see how Bert specifically and Benny react in this scenario because Mitzi is very independent away from her husband, Bert. But when Benny's around, she's a little bit more affectionate. And this is where it really starts to become clear that the affair is coming into light. Just touching on her her mental state really quick before we go into the next scene that, that's really, really important to me. Um, what What is your opinion about the phone call in the middle of the night? I, like I mentioned, this is where that line starts to blur of, is she mentally okay or is it, yeah. like, is it something else? And I think it's something else. But, you know, I also saw that Steven Spielberg mentioned this was a 100% true story that did happen with his mother. So... Whoa. Really? I, yeah, I don't know the perspective on that. I personally had my opinion, which was that it was kind of like a a grief thing that she yeah. imagined. Because I mean, when you're when you're already kind of in a questionable state of mind, and then something like that happens to the point that you don't really know what to do. Because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it made it seem as if this mother was the last relative that Mitzi had. Oh, wait, yeah. no, she has her uncle later, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but that she liked because she doesn't like the uncle later. Yeah. For, so for I, those of you who may not have seen it, she gets a call in the middle of the night and her mom's on the phone, but her mom just died. And she's like, there's a man coming. There's a man coming. Like, don't let him in. Don't let him in. Don't open the door. And it's it's very strange. And it feels, again, it's one of those moments that feels a little out of place and I don't know if y'all believe in ghosts or, like, what's going on here. Like, especially knowing it's a true story now. But it's it's a really – it's a moment that makes you really question Mitzi. And then we later find out that it's a premonition moment, which kind of yeah. goes into the next day. But we go into the next day, and Sammy's been gifted this editing machine from his father who is asking him to edit their camping trip footage that he was captured and Sammy, of course, is like, yeah, of course I'll do it, but I have to go film my movie with my Boy Scout troop tomorrow. And his dad's like, well, you know, your mother just lost her mother. I think this takes precedence. And he's like, dad, I have 40 people coming in to film this movie. I can't just cancel. And there's this tension again. And the dad starts to mention how it's a hobby and Sammy gets upset about it. So throughout this movie, we're seeing these moments where the dad starts to act like he's supporting Sammy's let's call it what he says, it a hobby. hobby, but it's really Sammy's love. And you start to realize that the dad doesn't view it as that. And he's just seeing it as this hobby and he needs his son to do this for him. So Sammy definitely is at a point where he doesn't feel appreciated. And that brings a little visitor to the house, which kind of flashes back to the scene we just talked about as a premonition. Yeah, this, what were you talking about when you said that was your favorite scene of the year? The Juilliard scene from Tar. Okay. The way you feel about that is the way that I feel about the Uncle Boris scene. Like 2022, this is my favorite scene of the year. And like I said, I I definitely revised this to be in my top 10. But this scene is so like I I couldn't stop crying. Like I was so engaged in this. And Uncle Boris, like, he's kind of a piece of shit. Like he's not a great guy. And he he comes in and apparently he's worked on movies and he said oh when did you work on movies 1927 and sammy's like oh that's when the talkie started and he's showing boris his camera and the, it gets into this part so uncle boris is mitzi's uncle it's her mother's brother 
And I think this is just like a super, super, super deep personal connection for me that I'm not going to like dive into at all. But there's a, a quote that he says to her and he says, talking about the grandmother, she didn't say to Mitzi, go do what you gotta. She was scared. And he's talking about how she used to be this beautiful piano player and she kind of gave it all up because her mother was just like really scared for her and she she didn't say go do what you gotta and one of my favorite quotes from this whole scene it's just him talking about how art can destroy your life and make it beautiful at the same time and this is the part that really hits the portrait of the artist of a young as a young man um comparison there but the the quote that really got me was like art will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth but it will tear your heart out and leave you lonely and it's just it's a lot <laughs> but that scene of him talking it's so intense and so beautiful and he ends up grabbing him and he he's like i need you to remember this pain i need you to remember this pain i really like that boris brings that perspective to sam's eyes which is the art and family kind of just never going to see eye to eye and you either have to choose yeah. if you want to make that sacrifice and bringing in the Mitzi tie and he really does kind of emphasize that you know your mother's a gifted piano player and she gave that up to be with your father and have you yeah. so I think that really puts into Sammy's perspective that he either needs to choose to pursue this or not which goes into later at the prom when he basically tells the girl that he's with that she should come to California with him so he can make movies because he doesn't see it as I can have both he sees it as I either need I you to come one. there or I can go and do that. Like, oh, it's, wow. That's it's a really good. Other. I did not connect those two, but you are absolutely correct. Like, huh. Interesting. And he tries I, to have both and he can't. Yeah. And I just I love that that comes back to tie in. And it's like he's learning all these life lessons along the way. And then he's actually being tested to them. Yeah. One of the right after this this conversation they have with Boris, though, there's this oh my god this beautiful shot <laughs> and it's i think it starts below bert you see his shadow really elongated on the wall and it moves up and then you see the from the back of mitzi you see her and it moves to the back of her and it settles down on her hands and then a little further and it stops there and you're you're seeing her face reflection in the steinway piano which are very expensive pianos uh, which I think gives you like a really good idea of how gifted she is as a pianist. But that shot was just like such a Spielberg shot to me. It was a, I'm going to say it's an intimate version of the dance at the gym shot from West Side Story. I like that comparison. Thank you. <laughs> it's just that beautiful moving dynamic shot, you know, you're getting everything. Yeah, completely agree with that. And this is kind of where it starts to tumble around Sam and in terms of Mitzi as a, a flawed character. After Boris leaves, Sammy starts to edit the camping trip footage because he's feeling a bit inspired now. Mm -hmm. And as he's cutting it together, he starts to notice a significant amount of footage of his mom and Benny together on the camping trip and there's moments where they'll be in the background and probably didn't know they were being recorded there's a moment where benny's hand is on mitzi's waist and she brushes it off but then you mm -hmm. see them very excitedly like hug each other it's just very interesting and you start to see sammy feel defeated as he's piecing together what's happened happening and he's coming to terms with it until 
it just kind of uh, it does such a good job at painting his world coming crashing down around him because mm-hmm. up until this point, he really did feel, I think, like him and Mitzi, his mom, had such a special connection as the two artists of the family. And I think this is almost a sense of betrayal to him. That's exactly what I was going to say. The betrayal is such an important part of this because they had that relationship and she's kind of the only one that understands him, I guess. Yeah, and she fights for him. I mean, when you think back, right when he wanted to make that movie and his dad said, no, we're not going to destroy your toys like that, she understood that he was just trying to interpret this film that he had seen in a different way. So she was the one that offered to help make that movie. And she's always been one to kind of look at Sammy's work as a piece of work instead of just a hobby, which is what separates her from Bert as the dad. And I think that really comes into play when you look at Sammy's relationship with his two parents. A hundred percent. And talking about Sammy's work, let's go into the next weekend where they're they're shooting his new movie. They're shooting this movie and I forget what it's called. Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember. It's a World War II movie, basically. Yeah. So they're shooting this World War II movie and this is the first time. And tell me if you agree or disagree, but I believe this is the first time you really see him direct. Because I think before he's you're seeing him making movies and it's it's kind of the way that every kid like starts making you make like you you're playing with your camera at home you're playing with your siblings your friends and then suddenly you have 40 people and now you have a guy operating the camera and you're sitting there watching it and and he has like almost a makeshift crew and they I loved the part where they made like a makeshift dolly I thought that was great but when when you see him actually direct for the first time and go up to that one kid and he's like, I just need you to like be here for a minute. And he goes, what, 60 seconds? You want me to count down? And he's like, no, no, no. I need I need to like see this coming from me. And it's beautiful. Like as somebody who's acted before and like worked, worked in film as an actor, that's the kind of relationship that you want with your director is this is what you're feeling in this moment. Like this is pull on this experience and pull on that in the the performance they get out of this kid who's just like having fun on a weekend pretending to shoot his friends is just phenomenal and that's what a good director does and even furthering that into the editing process i mean this is where he starts to kind of get experimental with what he has when they need like the explosions in the scene you see him setting up these little traps where they step on a bunch of rubble that will kick it up and when they need like mines they have firecrackers set up and when he needs the gunshots on film in the premiere you see them kind of have flashbangs which everyone wasn't expecting and he talks about how he had poked holes into the film reels so Mm -hmm. like you mentioned from the director's standpoint this is really where he did begin to kind of oversee everything i think that's actually a great point to point out that this really is where he did start his directing from what it seems like and the outcome is great His family loves it. His dad still kind of brushes it off as a hobby. But throughout their premiere and their screening of this, Benny and Mitzi are kind of getting a little bit flirty. So Sammy's not Mm -hmm. really even enjoying his movie. He's actually getting really frustrated at it because he decided not to out his mom or confront her about it. And instead, he's just holding it in. So there's a lot of hostility between the two of them coming in, which is about to come into play in a little while when we get to the slap that we mentioned before. So let's go to the slap. Um <laughs> we're in the kitchen and he's what is he doing? He's like getting ready for a swim test for oh for the um Boy Scouts. He's he's trying to get the his, life-saving badge. Yeah, the the merit the merit something. I don't know. I wasn't a Boy Scout, I was a Girl Scout. Um some kind of merit thing to become an Eagle Scout. Yeah? 
Yeah, it's like he's trying to learn uh, lifeguard skills, essentially, to get a life-saving badge. Yeah, and um, do you want to take over the slap? I just feel like, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just a really tense moment because it's Sammy and his two sisters in the kitchen, and they're kind of talking to him about his test, and he's really frantic and on edge, and he's kind of like, you know, this is really important to me, but his mom, of course, can't take anything seriously. So she struts in and is very much just joking about it. But Sammy is not in the mood for jokes. He's been keeping the secret about the affair for too long, and it's at a boiling point. And he lashes out at his mom, who in turn smacks him on the back when he turns away so hard that it leaves a full handprint. And he storms into his room. His mom comes in right behind him. And it's such a tense moment because she tries to, like, coddle him and grab him in a hug, but he just, like, flinches away. And it's so tense between the two of them. But the mom, of course, right away is so upset and she's apologizing profusely for it. And Sammy's kind of just defeated at this point. And the mom's not understanding where all this hostility from him was coming from to, you know, egg her on to the point that she wanted to smack him. And this is where she finds out what's been happening. And he clicks on his film reel. And instead of the camping trip edits that his dad had asked for, which he had already shown them a clean version of, he spliced together all the moments that the mom was with Benny on the trip. And she realizes that her affair has now taken its toll on her children. And she's so ashamed about it. This moment is so beautiful because he goes in and, and he doesn't say a word to her. Like when, when she's in there, like it's, it's silent. And she's like pleading with him. She's like, I'm so sorry. Like We've all had that moment where you either say something or you do something and it just comes out. You know what I mean? It's just so it's such a reaction and you're like, I can't believe I just did that. And you, you just profusely apologize. And and so she's having this moment and he's just, there's no words. He, she just shocked him. And I, I love this because he goes and he sets up the film and he reaches his hand out for her hand. And she kind of gives him this look of like, oh my God, thank God. Like, okay, he's going to forgive me because they have this special relationship and he leads her into the closet and then he leaves and lets her watch that by himself. And she comes out and she's crying so hard she can't even make a noise. And when he sees that she's like completely devastated from this, like he's he's just like, Mom, I won't tell. Like, I'm not gonna tell, I'm not gonna destroy our family. I'm not gonna tell. Yeah, they do have that really special relationship. And not that I think it's okay what Mitzi did, by no means. I'm not the person that would look at this saying like, oh, you gave up something and obviously like find the one that you love. I'm not that person, sorry. But I think that the bond that they have and you know Sammy agreeing to keep it a secret is something that's really special and kind of emphasizes that he's more willing to understand a perspective. And I think his conversation with his uncle earlier did really actually help. I think had that not happened, he wouldn't have understood where she's coming from of having to have given up her dream for them. And I think this, this scene is so important because we're about to, we're about to like move into an entire section of his life where he gave up filmmaking and he's not making films and he really doesn't care. It's not in, I mean, the next scene he's selling his camera. And before we get into like what happens there, because that's also really important to me, having this scene is just an example, or maybe example is the wrong word, but like it's showing how he weaponized his art and he weaponized it against the person that he loves the most in the world. And I think that like devastated him so much because he saw how happy his films made people. And that's what like drove him for so many years. Like he loved it and he loved making people happy. And like 
being an artist and like creating things is to have a reaction from other people. Yes, it's to like have an outlet for you, but it's to it's to give something to someone else. Uh, whether that's like a moment of like catharsis or like a smile or a laugh, it's just to like give that to someone else. And when he destroys his mom with that, I think it really puts a dent in his love for his art because I mean, he just used it against somebody, you know? Yeah, I didn't even think about it like that, but that really does paint into perspective. I was really having trouble grasping why he would give up filmmaking because I was like, he did nothing wrong. Yeah. But basically where we're going before he sells his camera is Bert announces that he is now up for a job promotion in California. And Mitzi is pleading with him not to move to California unless he can get a job for Benny too. Of course, Bert doesn't know that this is because of the affair. That's still a secret. But she becomes frantic about it. And this sends Sammy to the camera shop to sell his camera because he doesn't want to make movies anymore. Which leads to an interesting scene because Benny ends up showing up at the camera shop buying a very expensive camera for Sammy. And Sammy's very reluctant about it. And he kind of alludes that he knows about the affair without actually saying it. And there's some tension between the two of them. He refuses the camera from Benny. And then they have this moment where Benny basically is like, don't give up filmmaking because your mom gets so much joy from seeing you pursue your dreams like this. Mm -hmm. And that leads to Sammy saying, you know, I'll buy the camera off of you for 35 bucks. And Benny takes it and drives off and you realize that he didn't actually take the money. And this leads to, I guess, the end of Benny really like having an appearance in the movie because he doesn't go to California with them. But I guess it gives him the redeeming moment to make the audience not feel like he's a total skis. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Um, Right before we get into this next part, though, I do want to give you like a disclaimer from pretty much here until the rest of the movie. There is a lot of themes of anti-Semitism. And if that's something that's going to make you uncomfortable, please don't put yourself through that. Like there's I'm going to give you guys a lot of quotes through this because it's really important to what the plot is. But um, I don't I don't want us to make anyone uncomfortable. So if that's something that's going to like upset you in the storyline of this, please you know, we'll we'll see you next week. But I just want to give you that little disclaimer before we go over to California because it gets pretty bad. Naturally. Why does everything just always get worse for people when they move to California in movies? <laughs> I know, right? City of dreams. So right before we get to California, we're having this like journey and they're driving. And Bert makes this really interesting comment. And he does it in front of the whole family. And this is where things kind of get really tense between the two of them. And you see their marriage really start falling apart and he says i had a dream last night that i socked benny right in the nose and it it upsets mitzi so much that she has him stop the car and she gets out and sammy follows her and they kind of have this moment together and this is where she says to him she's like it never got as far as you think it got and he said i didn't ever think that mom and and that's what like leads me because this moment is so genuine and she's being so open with him that it makes me feel like at this point the affair hadn't got to a point where she was being completely unfaithful per se yeah it's really just that moment that makes me believe that i feel like in this specific moment mitzi is kind of leaning on her kids to a level that's less than appropriate yes even though her and sammy have the secret first of all the daughters are completely oblivious they think the mom's throwing up on the side of the road Mm -hmm. but To know that your son is keeping this secret, to have no remorse, and then to try 
to try and validate it by saying it didn't get as far as you think it did. I don't know. I am not the biggest fan of how Mitzi handles these events. And then the fact that she's throwing this tantrum basically once they get to California about how Benny couldn't come with them. And she just kind of becomes like very standoffish and a little bit of a pessimist almost. I just feel like, you know, that wasn't handled really well. Yeah. This is another reason. I mean, from here till the end, really, it's just reason after reason. I mean, especially the monkey part. Um, reason after reason that kind of leads me to believe that she she is borderline. And just like she has these extreme attachments to things and she has these like manic moments. And then like she has very deep almost inappropriate relationships, you know? And I I think, I don't want to say Mitzi's not to blame because obviously, you know, I don't know her. She's not my mom, but like, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's all her. I think she's got something going on in her head because there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And if you take Mitzi's scenes individually and you take them out of the film and just think about her as a character, I think there's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up for like a very neurotypical mind. Yeah, definitely agree on that, which brings to once they get to California. I mean, she buys a pet monkey and names it Benny because she was lonely. And what does that say to your family? That is just crazy, which then, of course, leads to her husband kind of asking her to get therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, He knows that she's just really frantic. Yeah, she's completely against it. And that brings us into Sammy's life in California, which... It's not that great. Do you want to talk about his first day at school? Yeah. So let's go into that. So he he starts high school and him and his sisters are all walking in together and and he's like, oh my God, what are these? He calls them like Sequoia people (laughs) Um, because like they're all giants. Like they're they're really tall and he's a pretty short kid and they kind of like push their way through. And so we, we get into this volleyball scene, you know, we make our way to volleyball and you know, those gym scenes, they never go well for the art kids. <laughs> um, he accidentally hits super tall, blonde, popular Logan when he's trying to spike the volleyball and they, they, you know, we're going to move on to the locker scene here and they ask him what his name is. And he says, Fableman. And he's they go oh what bagel man and he says something one of them says something what's that other kid's name not logan but the other one chad chad okay yeah um they like never say his name again and i forgot it (laughs) but chad i think it's chad that says no one likes jews but other jews and they're just like really coming at him and the next day like they hang a bagel in sammy's locker and it's like jew hole is like written on it and it's just like really screwed up stuff that they're doing and one of the things that logan i think it's logan that says you know you better watch your back because i'm not going to beat you up now but next time you go take a a drink at the water fountain i'm going to shove your head in and break your teeth so yeah you see him later like flinching like he he can't drink water It's unnerving. That moment at the water fountain really stuck with me. I don't know why, but just after hearing the way that they said it, I really thought it was about to happen. But that does lead to Sammy, who's now going by Sam, because I think as he got older, he just preferred that. And he even mentions, because people do start calling him Sammy, that like the bullies start calling him Sammy, and he'll correct him and be like, it's Sam. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of more of his maturing, but 
he ends up catching Logan cheating on his girlfriend in the stairwell. And this comes out when Logan and Chad are later again bullying him in the courtyard. And so he weaponizes what he saw with Logan's Dude, girlfriend standing so there. I the bullying perspective aside, I thought this scene was hilarious because of the girlfriend's reaction. Like she's just so instantaneous. She's like, I knew it. And she just storms off and is so easy to believe. And the fact uh-huh. that Logan then tries to bully Sam into going and saying it was a lie. And when he does, like, she's just like, how did you know the How girl's did you know she was, was a redhead? Red? Like, yeah. Like, you know that this has happened before. So I think that that moment of, you know, what goes around comes around really does come out. And it's apart from the bullying, you remove that aspect. It's a fun scene. Yeah, apart from the bullying. But let's talk about that for a second. Because that's, I mean, this is like, there's one scene that really bothered me later. And... I really want to touch on that because it wasn't as blatant as this one is, but uh, they're like, it, it, the girls come up, you know, it's, it's Claudia. And I think she's, is she with Monica in the scene or Monica's just yeah. in the next scene? Okay. Claudia and Monica, Claudia is Logan's girlfriend. And they're like, Oh, you need to apologize for her because you were making googly eyes at her. You were drooling at her. And he was like, I wasn't drooling at her. And then they just literally, slap back with then apologize for killing christ yeah like it's, the bullying's intense in this movie it's like so uncomfortable like ugh, I, I hate this scene like it is they're so mean to him and he handles it really well but they they do beat the crap out of him yeah he tolerates a lot more than i did in middle school let me tell you that yeah yeah in high school middle school for me was more of the bullying years high school was mind your own business years uh, it was all the bullying years for me, so. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You know, the yeah. art suffers and just <laughs> the builds art the suffers. artist. <laughs> but then Sam goes to talk to Logan's girlfriend, Claudia, the next day with Monica. And this is where we're introduced to Monica, who's a very interesting character. She is essentially Monica. the first love interest of Sam. And it's very funny because she is like a devout Christian she is talking about like the very first time you meet her she's like i love jesus and then it cuts to her room and she has like a shrine with pictures of jesus and sam's kind of taken aback he's like oh haha and at first it's like lighthearted jokes but then they have their own little you know they're cute together i don't hate them but monica's just kind of an airhead this scene was like very disturbing to me this is the scene that i think like really bugged me because she she's like literally trying to convert him like the the first time she asks him to come over she's like well you should come over and we can pray on it we can pray on it she gets him on the floor and they're like both on their knees and she's like i don't know because it's presented as a funny scene but i didn't think it was funny so i'm not really sure how it like comes across (laughs) um but he, he like, goes to kiss her, and she stops him and goes, let's pray. And they're on the floor, and she's like, you have to pray for him to come into you. And she's, like, praying for him and saying, I'm going to breathe the Holy Spirit into you. And it's, like, literally forcing her religion on him, and it's super uncomfortable, and he's super uncomfortable. And I, I think that's, that's – she's almost worse than the bullies to me. I don't know. I felt like he was kind of vibing with that. Like, he wasn't by any means okay with what she was saying, but he was just rolling with the punches. At this point, we haven't really, like, given Sam any kind of a love interest. So I think, you know, teenage boy mind 
senior in high school, you're going to kind of start feeling that attraction towards either guys or girls. And he hasn't really done anything. Like he's been so focused on his family's drama and on his filmmaking stuff that he hasn't really had time to explore that. So I think the awkwardness is the charm in the scene. Yeah, I didn't, I really didn't like the scene like at all. I, I thought it was uncomfortable. Um, but Maybe that was just my perspective of it, but I don't know. It, she just like this. This scene was really disturbing as a character. She's not the worst, but it, I just really didn't like the scene. And a couple other things she does were like really icky. Well, that cuts us to her next purpose for Sam. She actually gets him back into filmmaking yeah. because she offers to loan him her dad's camera, which is a very fancy camera that Sam has wanted for a really long time. And she basically says, R-flex. she basically says, if you're willing to go and film our ditch day, which for their school, it's like an organized ditch day that the school actually coordinates and all the seniors go to that her dad would be okay if he used the camera. So Sam's really tempted by this offer and all of a sudden he is all about it. And that takes us to ditch day. Yeah. Ditch day is like, it's such a fun scene. Like nothing about ditch day. It's kind of like you're getting hit with all this bullying and bullying and like he is having a really bad time. And I have this one moment we skipped over real quick. I'm, I'm just going to touch on it because it's important here as well is that first day that he gets bullied and, like, the crap beaten out of him, he goes home and he brings his camera and he holds it up to his head and, like, just hears the ticking, the, like, film roll. And I think that's just so soothing to him and it, it like, calms him down a bit. So seeing him get back into film, you're – I literally have in my notes, like, he finally looks happy. Like, you're seeing him look happy and he's he's hanging out with Monica. He's, he's got his girl with her. He's doing what he loves. And they're like playing pranks on people. Like she at one point is dropping ice cream onto people. And, and you don't really know what's going on until later you see it. And he's like filming up in the seagulls and then filming down. And you're just seeing, it looks like the, the seagulls were like pooping on people. It was great. And that's kind of just the whole filmmaker's perspective. You know, it's taking the footage that you have and making it look like it's something else because it really shows, I think when you see it all put together, the power of film. And you even have that moment where the bully's like, I didn't know that I could be painted in such a great light and people saw that and I don't know how you made that happen. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I really like about this movie is it really just shows the power that film can have on people and on events in people's lives. Yes. I really want to talk about this next scene because it's kind of quick, but it's really important. And it made me think there was one thing. I remember this very distinctly in one of my classes. We did an exercise in silence. And from your from your exercise that you were doing, we were all placed in groups. I promise you guys this is <laughs> this is relevant. But we were all placed in groups and we had to come up with a story like as a group. We had like five minutes to do this. We got up on stage in front of everybody and the the idea, we set a timer. The idea was to keep the silence going as long as it as it is natural because silence is so powerful. And the the idea behind it was nobody knew what like was actually going on because we weren't allowed to use words. And I think my group ended up getting to like a minute and a half or something like that. It was it was really cool. And it's in a theater setting, so it was a little different. But that moment to me really explained the importance of silence in moments like these. And 
they move into their new house and it's beautiful and it's this beautiful house and they have like the lighting coming through the windows is just absolutely gorgeous and the only perspective we get from this because this is you know it's filmed like a normal movie but we have those moments where where we're just seeing it from sam's perspective and he's filming everybody as we go into this new house but the music is it kind of slows down and it's sad and through this i think this scene is for mitzi and she doesn't look happy but through this whole scene like bert looks excited and the girls are excited and mitzi is kind of outside and she's participating in the scene but this is where like acting comes into play so much because the whole scene is silent other than this music and music has a really important role in telling you how to feel but i I think they just do it's like a really great example of storytelling in silence one of the things that i really like about just california in general once they move there i think that's when you really start to see the characters speak for themselves because Sam is a lot more willing to speak his mind. Mitzi is a lot more willing to show her emotions. And Bert, the dad, is a lot more willing to kind of just show that he's fed up with it all. And even the sisters, like when they get to school, they have that conversation with Sam where they're just like, can we just pretend that everything is normal when we're at school because, you know, everything's crazy. And you have that moment where they tell the kids about the affair and the divorce and the dad's lying about why they're separating. And then of course the mom's like, you don't have to protect me. So it's a very interesting aspect to see these characters grow so much from where they were just because they've moved somewhere else. But I think they do a really good job of it. I think yeah, you're absolutely correct. All of their characters really blossom and like unfold into like who they really are. They were all holding back a certain part of them and it kind of just explodes out in California. And that, once they finish announcing their divorce, kind of cuts to this really interesting scene where Sam is zoned out and he's staring at a reflection of himself in the mirror. And in the mirror, he sees himself recording everything. And to me, that's a really powerful shot because- It really is. At least in my interpretation of it was that it's speaking to his ability to almost envision how everything in his life is a scene. And it's it's like a gift almost that he has. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you work in like film or theater or anything, you know, sometimes you find yourself like in life. I don't know if this is relatable to you at all. But let, let us know. Um, but I, I find myself at least sometimes like when things get really intense, it's almost easier to see myself living through something as a character or like living through something like for him as a director. And I think it's, it's the separation of like art in reality. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I actually think that's a great way of putting it. I used to do that a lot to kind of like envision different scenarios that I was caught up in and emotionally struggling with coping with. I kind of envision them as scenes and see how they play out in my head in different scenarios and stuff. So no, I totally get that. Um, And his coping mechanism, of course, is envisioning that. And then he goes back to his room and finishes editing the video of the ditch day, which takes us to prom. Prom night. Um, This is one of those scenes where I think I just, it makes me not appreciate Monica. He's in the car with her and he hands her her corsage and it's really cute and sweet. And, you know, that's an exciting moment. Everyone knows, you're, you know, you know you're going to get a corsage at prom, but like putting the corsage on, it's like a whole deal, you know, it's like a ceremony. I always had so much fun at prom and like 
getting my corsage put on my wrist and it's like a surprise. You don't know what it's going to look like. It's, it's just really fun. But on the end of the corsage, he had bought her a cross necklace. And, and, and this is like my thing with Monica is that she wants to like convert him so bad, but he's so willing to accept her as who she is and like gift her with things that like are about her religion. You know what I mean? And so that's why that, that moment, like looking back on it, it just like bothers me a little extra because he's just so open to her, you know, and he like loves her for who she is. I feel like she's very open too, though. I mean, when you go into the prom scene, I think, mind you, she's open to a, a character flawed extent that it really just shows how naive she is. But she kind of has this moment. I mean, they go into the prom and Sam professes his love for her and basically is like, I want to marry you and I want you to move to California so I can go be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm going to Texas A&M, you know that. And he kind of starts to have this meltdown, very reminiscent of how his mom was responding when she found out that they were leaving Benny. He's just like, what do you mean? Like, I thought we were going to be together forever, like all this stuff. And she's very hesitant she's like we've only been dating like a couple of weeks and then she's kind of just like you didn't expect us to last forever like you knew a breakup was coming and so she literally says you're just a fun boy to kiss yeah so i think there's kind of like that high schooler naivety to her i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing i think she's just focused on her own stuff and sam himself not to say that he's a self-centered character i just think that he is so driven on achieving and chasing his dreams that it shows that he's not really willing to settle for anyone else. So I don't think that they were going to be a couple that lasted together. I felt like it was almost more of a, a sense of reflection for him and development in terms of who he is as a character and kind of having that moment where he's realizing what he wants in life. You know, he had Mm -hmm. that conversation with his uncle and this is that moment where he's not really sure if he's going to be able to have both or if he has to choose and he wants to be able to have both. But of course, just like the uncle said was going to happen, he's going to have to choose. Does he want to go with her, which I don't even think she would allow at this point? Or does he want to follow his dreams? And he goes to California still. Right. He moves over to LA. So I I mean, I think she's, oh my God, I don't even like want to admit this. but <laughs> Because this is like personal, but whatever. Love you guys. Um, <laughs> I think she's important in his journey. And I, I feel like I had a, a very similar situation and the, I think you're going to know who I'm talking about, but I'm obviously not going to name said person. Um, they were extremely important to where I ended up and the way that my career ended up going because I, I started college as like a criminology student and I ended up moving on into like theater and then I discovered film and I loved it and I like made that my career for a while. And I mean, it's a, it doesn't, relationships sometimes aren't always about the relationship. It's about where they get you on your path in life. And I think that's Monica for him. Absolutely. I think that Monica is nothing more than, for lack of a better term, a plot device, but she is a little bit more than that. She furthers him and kind of gives him a sense of clarity in what he wants in life. Yeah, I think relationships are, like, meant to shift us into, you know, good or bad. And I think, though it ends sad and, like, he wants to be with her, she really did change him for the good. And she got him back into film. Without her, he wouldn't have gotten back into film, I don't think. So, or maybe he would have later down the line, but it would have 
stunted everything and nothing would have worked out the same way. So I think she's extremely important and it doesn't matter so much about who she is and if they were in love. It just matters that she had an impact on him in his life. And of course, in the moment, he's very emotional about it. He ends up storming out of the prom. But then you have a really good moment with him and Logan where Logan comes. (laughs) It was not what I was expecting. But Logan basically comes into the hallway crying. And Sam's very confused. He's like, what? And he thought Logan was upset about the video that they showed at prom. But in the video, it kind of painted Logan as almost like this jock hero. He was like playing volleyball. And there was this furthers my statement of the correct soundtrack could make anything look better. Yes. Um, I think that an appropriate soundtrack could make like the worst of movies look good. Not to, not to say the ditch day video is bad, but I think that Logan sees that he's never really seen himself in that light. And that kind of struck something in his heart. So he's having this heartfelt moment with Sam where he's like, I didn't know that, you know, film had the power to do that. And I didn't know you could make me look like that. And that's something that I've always wanted to be. But he's he's a little mad about it because he's like, you painted me as this golden boy. How am I ever going to be that person? That's not who I am. And I think he has this weird complex of like, again, he was edited to be this like perfect golden god of like the high school jock. And honestly, I think this scene is important because <laughs> to me, I didn't think this in the moment, but now that we're kind of like going into it and analyzing it a little bit, I think this is kind of a dig at the uh, peaked in high school people. Oh, I'd agree with that completely. Yeah. And I mean, he's like, how am I ever going to be that person? I mean, obviously he wasn't. We don't know who this guy is now. Everybody knows Steven Spielberg. I think I actually read there was a follow up about this. Someone asked Steven Spielberg about this. They said, was that based on truth? And he was like, yes. And when he was explaining it, it was either, I'm pretty sure it was Logan. Um, He talked about how now he is a police officer. Okay, well, he did something. I have my opinions on that, but I don't want to, I don't want to get political. (laughs) Then let's go into the next scene. Yeah. Um, That cuts to the next day. Well, actually, let's tie up that scene first. Chad comes in after Logan and Sam are finally having a heart to heart. And wow, his unwanted commentary comes back. And because in the video, Chad basically was painted as this guy that can't get anyone. There's like videos of him going up to all these girls and all these girls leaving him. So Uh Chad's fuming. But when he comes up to try and throw a punch at Sam, Logan just steps in and decks him right in the face and Uh basically scares him away. So Logan and Sam really end on like a a happy understanding between each other. There's still this weird tension between them, but like, I think the score is settled by the end. Yeah, and that kind of is like the closure on the high school chapter. Yeah. Oh, we have one more scene before we jump to a year later, though. And that's the that's the scene in the kitchen again where he comes back home from prom and Mitzi's standing there. She's like, huh, must have been a good night. It's like morning at this point. There's like sunlight. Uh, don't know where he was all night. but <laughs> And she she kind of like breaks down in front of him and she's like begging for his forgiveness. She's like, I could never forgive myself for slapping you that one time. And she brings it up. And it's, I I think this podcast is so hard sometimes because (laughs) I'm like trying to analyze as I'm talking. Um, But I think this scene is important because after this, we don't see Mitzi again. And it gives her character a rounded out closure. And I don't, I think she just wanted 
what was best for him at all times. And she's so sorry. And she's like, I could never forgive myself. And he's saying, mom, I forgive you. I forgive you. And she just keeps going on until she like, he hugs her and like, she knows he means it. And you get this, like, they kind of move the camera out and you're like leaving the scene and they're talking about Monica. And he's like, well, Monica broke up. And it just kind of, it's like a happy moment. You know, they, the last time we see Mitzi is a happy moment. And she mentions to Sam, she uses the comparison comparing her love for Benny to Sam's love for filmmaking and basically mm-hmm. says that he shouldn't be giving up filmmaking because if it's anything like her love for Benny, then it's not something that he can give up. Yeah. And that brings us to the one year later when Sam is in college pursuing this and he's living in California with his father while Mitzi is living in Arizona with the girls and Benny at this point. This scene, like killed me it was oh man sammy gets out of the car and he's like crying and he he runs in and he's like dad dad and i think something like i thought something like horrible had happened but he's he's having a panic attack you find out he's not doing good at college and he his dad ends up coming in and the, the line he says to him uh, there's two lines that really stuck out to me he said i don't know what to do anymore i don't want to disappoint you and then very shortly after that he says my life is just going by so fast and it's not going anywhere and like he's just so upset like he's he's not working in film but he's trying to and he's sending out letters after letters to these studios and he's like failing out of college he's like dad i hate school like i hate school i don't want to do this anymore yeah and you know his dad has that moment again where he's just like i should have pushed you harder to pursue a different career path but his dad does make a comment in the moment where he basically is like, I'm accepting of this and this is what you are choosing to do and I'm accepting. But he does kind of slide in that last minute dig of, you know, I, sh- I should have steered you down a more stable career path, which couldn't get one more out of there. And of course, in this moment when Sam's having a panic attack, like really? Yeah, I mean, it's he has a complicated relationship with his father. Not, I would not necessarily say it's a bad relationship. They just don't understand each other in the same way, and and that's okay. But his dad is never going to understand him. I hope he does now. But <laughs> they do. They've made amends. I okay. in a lot of the research I did post Fableman era, there has been amends made across the board. Okay, good, good. I'm I'm really happy to hear that. But it's you know it's it's a difficult relationship not that i would say it's bad or that they they dislike each other they just don't see eye to eye and i think this this whole scene is oh my god this this movie just ties up ends beautifully like you know you're not gonna see monica again you know you're not gonna see mitzi again this is the last scene with his dad and they tie up that end and he's like okay like you gotta do what you gotta do not super happy about it but go do it and he ends up giving him the mail so this ends up tying up the ends of Mitzi, um, it's just like a, a collection of pictures and it's it's her and the girls. And again, we do this, this beautiful shot of silence where you're just watching Bert's face as he's looking at one of the pictures and you see it just like kill him inside. Yeah, that moment just, uh, it gave me full body chills because then he just hands a picture to Sam and Sam's yeah. like, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And of course, Bert's like in that moment, you know, I think that actually is really what kind of sparks Bert being like, I think you need to pursue your love because he actually in that moment sees how happy she is. And that's probably what makes it so gut-wrenching is that he knows now that she is happier now with him (laughs) than she was with Bert. 
And I think that's kind yeah. of something that sits with him. But in the mail, there's also a letter from CBS, which is offering Sam an assistant role on one of their sets. And this brings us to our final moment in the film. Yeah, so he's at he's at CBS and and the guy's talking to him um, and he's like, you know, I know this isn't what you want to do. Like, this is TV. You want to do you said you wanted to like make movies and and he's like and if you've ever met somebody who like <laughs> decides film is their career or like is fresh out of film school they're not looking to like direct a movie they're like just get me on like i'm itching to be on set like get me on set and that's what, exactly what he says he's like you know i can maybe make you like an assistant of an assistant of an assistant and he's like yes like please like I, I don't even care that it's TV. I just want to work. Like, I just want to be here. And his passion actually strikes something where one of the filmmaking executives says, I'm going to introduce you to someone that I know. And he takes yeah, he him says, across the, the lot. <laughs> there, let's hear it. He says, you know who you need to meet? How would you like to meet the greatest film director that ever lived? And he's right across the hall. And then it cuts to Sam waiting in this office. And we're seeing there's this great 360 shot when Sam is waiting where it just shows a bunch of the movie posters in this office. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being the Western director, John Ford, who is portrayed by David Lynch in this movie, which... I love David Lynch films. I just, he's great. Um, very abstract. I'm a big David Lynch fan. So seeing him in this movie in the final moments was just like, wow, didn't realize you were in this movie. <laughs> I think one one important thing about that as well is that the last poster that it settles on is the man who shot Liberty Valance. And that was, I think, the second movie that we see in this film that he like recreated. Like that's the first one he recreated with people aside from like the train scene. Like he goes back and he recreates scenes from the man who shot Liberty Valance. And I think that's like really special to tie that in like from beginning to end. Again, like beautiful tying up at the at the ends here. It, it's just gorgeous. Oh, and, and, and there's that scene, that part with him in the horizon. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so the director actually has this conversation where he's talking to him about art and what art means to him. And he points at these paintings that he has in his office and he says, where's the horizon in that picture? And he points to this picture where the horizon is in the top. And Sam says it's in the top. And then he points to this other one where the horizon's along the bottom of the picture. And he says, where is the horizon in this picture? And Sam says it's along the bottom. And then he says, if the horizon's along the top, it's art. If the horizon's along the bottom, it's art. If the horizon's in the middle, it's shit. Yeah, he's like, it's boring as shit. <laughs> it's boring as shit. And it's just, it's so great because you're seeing Sam finally getting these different perspectives of people that are like-minded like him. Yeah. And you just see his face light up in this moment because he was so tense going into this meeting. But as soon as he starts speaking with this director, like you can just see that they are speak in the same language he's understanding exactly what he's saying even though his way of like teaching him that moment it's it's not the like clearest way but you just see that they're on the same wavelength and sam is just so happy he beams out of the office says thank you and it ends with that winning money shot of him walking along the back lot and he's just walking with the horizon away in the middle with the horizon <laughs> in the middle 
And then at the very end, like the last two seconds of the shot, the camera tilts up so that the horizon is at the bottom. And that's like such a meta moment if you think about it. Because, you know, Spielberg's directing this. And that's the character that Spielberg is based on. And so, it, you know, you see this whole movie and you're like, this is the moment I finally realized. And it's a very meta moment there. And it's it's funny, like, I literally laughed when I watched it. Because I, I was watching him leave the studio and I was like, weird, they just like did all this this horizon talk and like they they put the horizon right in the middle and then i like audibly laughed when it tilted up to fix it yeah it was cute it was a cute moment it is and it caps off the movie perfectly and that is the fablemans an hour and a half later into this episode more than that dude (laughs) we uh i'm gonna say this last year we had a spielberg nom and this year we had a spielberg nom and i think I think Spielberg's going to just have to win every year for that uh, the longest Road to the Oscars episode. Yeah, because last year it was West Side Story, and we that was our biggest oh, we episode went last that. year. So, you know, yeah. Spielberg, you just are such a thorough man that we can't really take the shortcuts with you. Oh, but to Spielberg. That does bring me to my next question. What do you rank this movie? I give it a 10 out of 10. I love this movie. I When I look at films and I'm going to, like, rate them, my first thought is, okay, if this, because me, me, my academic brain, I'm like, <laughs> like numbers don't really make sense to me. So I'm like, okay, if we're we're grading this, like say it was a paper or something, um, I always go like A, B, C, and then, you know, seven is pretty low on my scale, even though it's kind of a higher number. So I'm like, okay, this is an A. So I'll give it a nine, right? And then I think to myself, what would I change about this movie? And if it's like, more than three things it's a nine 9.5 if it's nothing it's a perfect 10 and i i wouldn't change anything about this film i loved it beginning to end i thought it was beautiful it was gorgeously shot the cinematography was beautiful i think the team i was i was reading something that everyone that was atl on this this project was somebody that spielberg had worked with and was a key player on any like one of his projects before some some people go way back to close encounters with the third kind so i think it was just a labor of love it's it's a beautiful story it was gorgeously told and yeah i mean it was just a labor of love and i i absolutely enjoyed it from beginning to end it's a gorgeous film what is your opinion on it so it's interesting i would rate this movie eight out of ten for me okay um I rate it on a terms of like star value higher than Tar, but Tar did make its way into my top 10 and this one didn't. And I'll tell you why, because with the rewatchability with this one, mm-hmm. it wasn't to the extent that Tar was and that every time I watched Tar, there was something new I was thinking about or there was a new theory that I had going around it. Whereas this one's just a very straightforward film. Um, I do think that it is a very gorgeous film and it really did remind me of some of the things that I love about filmmaking. And I could really feel just the love that Steven Spielberg had for filmmaking through these characters. And I think that 100% the passion was put into this movie and it is, I hope in every aspect that he was hoping for, everything that he wanted, I would absolutely recommend checking this movie out. It is something that most people would definitely enjoy watching, even if they aren't like super into the magic of film. I think it's just a coming of age story that's fun in its mm-hmm. own retrospect, as well as a movie that centers around the love for an aspiring filmmaker. So very good to me. Um, eight stars across the board. Do you think that this will be the best picture of the year? 
I am so glad you asked me that question. I think I, I talked about this last year, and I, I've been so excited to talk about this since we like started this. I, I think I brought this up last year when we were talking about CODA, because that we both put that as our number one for what we wanted to win and what we thought was going to win. Uh, and it, it did end up winning. I have this thing, and I think it's like the sixth sense that I have. <laughs> I like to believe I have magic powers. Um, out of all of the best pictures, if there is a film that I start inexplicably crying in, the moments that I was crying in this film were sad, and there were some that weren't sad. I just, like, felt them so much. And the movies that I cry the most in always win Best Picture. So two years ago, I cried all the way through Nomadland. If, you, if you've seen Nomadland, you know it's not, like, sad necessarily, but it did win. And then Coda is definitely not sad, and I cried the whole way through that and that one. Um, so right now, <laughs> there are still a few films that I haven't seen, but right now this wins for me crying through the the highest percentage of it. So I think this is a great chance of winning based on my sixth sense. Well, I mean, Avatar is stacked against it now. You can't cry for the percentage of three and a half hours and well, compare it to Avatar's this. not going to make me cry, period, Sean. I, I'm not excited for that. Listen, I'm in sync with you. I do think this does have a good chance at being best picture. I would definitely put it in my top three contenders for the year. I do think there are still some that I would say it's don't tough, completely tough like, yeah, I would say that don't completely like assume this would win, but it would definitely be in my top three contenders. Last year, I think I had a little bit more of a grasp on what was going to win mm -hmm. um, in terms of what my gut feeling was telling me but this year it's like you mentioned a very close race so i think that it'll be interesting to see where we get taken to which brings us to our next episode which is would you like to share with the class yeah we're going to be talking about the banshees of inishara next um which i'm super excited about this was my second most watched nominee of last year so i'm very excited to talk about it I saw Banshees twice. I'm looking forward to my rewatch before we record it. I think there's a lot of themes and just an all-around well-made film that we have to look forward to discussing next time. But Absolutely. in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and say that if you guys enjoyed today's episode, and thank you for bearing with us, we do know it was a little bit of a longer <laughs> one, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at BTST Podcast. And if you have any movie suggestions for us, Want to let us know what you thought of this film or any of the other Best Picture nominees of the year? Go ahead and shoot us a DM or email us at btstpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and join us next week. Don't for Banshees. Uh, don't forget, though, we do have our, our little thing going, our giveaway. Um, So if you want to be entered in our giveaway for this year for the $25 AMC gift card, which will get you a subscription to A-List for a month if you're interested in that. Uh, please share our posts. Make sure to tag us. We'll we'll get you an entry for every post that you share um, on Instagram or something like that. And also, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, we have options as low as a dollar, and you will get entries for that as well. So excited for you guys! Excited for this this giveaway! Excited for Banshees! Thanks for bearing with us. Sorry for the last half of that. If you can hear my stomach, pretend you don't because I didn't eat today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Sounds good. In the meantime, I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this has been another episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks Bye. for tuning in.